We read in your Bible this morning, Judges chapter 9 now. And uh, I have been normally anytime we take up a new chapter, I would read the entirety of the chapter first. But I've chosen not to do that with this chapter. We shall take it as we are to look into it. And so this morning, Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. That is his maternal grandfather. And he spoke with that those family members saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem. Whether is better for you either that all the sons of Jerubbabel, which are threescore and ten persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem all these words. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him threescore and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Pirith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. And he went unto his father's house at Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Jerubbabel, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together in all the house of Milo and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. Turn with me, if you will, again in your hymn book. Stand with me and we sing together hymn number 500. How sad our state 
my nature is our sin how deep it stains and satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains but hark a voice of sovereign love Tis Christ's inviting word, O ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. My soul obeys the almighty call and runs to this relief. I would believe thy promise, Lord. Oh, help my unbelief. To the dear fountain of thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. Here let me wash my spotted soul from stains of deepest dye. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Savior and my own. Thank you and be seated. This morning, as we begin today to take a new portion of this record of the judges, that is this section contained in chapter 9, I will proceed as has been my usual manner to do with a general overview of the text as a whole. The chapter easily divides itself, according to Dr. Gill, into at least five sections, which is more or less the method by which I will undertake to consider it. First, in verses 1 through 6, there is an account of what Matthew Henry called the craft and cruelty of Abimelech, by which he managed to get himself appointed as king of the Shechemites. Indeed, he thinks as king of all Israel. Next, in verses 7 through 21, there is this most glorious and brilliant Old Testament parable 
by Jotham, Gideon's youngest son, in which he exposes the folly of Abimelech's cunning and foretells his ultimate ruin. Thirdly, in verse 22 through 41, there is a record of the contentions that fell out between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The battle which then resulted from those contentions and Abimelech's defeat and ultimate flight. And then in verse 42 through 49, we will see that hatred and malice that continued between Abimelech and the Shechemites that eventually resulted in the entire ruin of that city and its inhabitants. And then finally, in verse 50 through 57, God willing, we shall see the death of Abimelech according to the parable delivered prophetically by Jotham earlier. And so now we begin this morning with only an attempt to take in the wording and understand the content of just those first six verses. I closed the last message of chapter 8 last week, if you recall, by pointing to those last two verses as containing an epitaph on the tombstone of the now dying state of Israel. Dying spiritually. And I said that in those last two verses, one may extract the exact wording for a perfect epitaph on the tombstone of Israel. Being twofold, they remembered not the Lord, and they showed no kindness. What an epitaph. What a tragic epitaph. And yet, there it is, written by inspiration in the last two verses of that chapter. And then in a closing statement, I said that as chapter 8 comes to a close, a dark black cloud is gathering over Israel. Her deliverer, who has now occupied three chapters of our attention in this record, and by the way, that is an extended record as the record of these judges go. Some receive no more than two verses. But this deliverer of Israel has occupied three chapters of our attention. And now in verse 32 of chapter 8, he's died. And this black cloud of apostasy and subsequent judgment 
has begun to break out now over Israel's head. Break out into a full-blown tsunami of disaster. A vile, merciless storm that will crush the very life of Israel as God's covenant nation. That long and glorious shadow, 40 years cast over the domestic life of Israel for 40 years is now gone. Oh, hear that. I can hear as chapter 9 opens that terrible howling of the wind and see the crash of the lightning in just the very wording of verse 1. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem with his mother, unto his mother's brethren, and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. Can you not hear the clap of thunder of the storm in those words gathering over Israel? Just here, in the very first word in the Hebrew text, the very first word of verse 1, just here, the foreboding of the tragedy can already be felt. In the Hebrew, the first word of the verse is Abimelech. And in that first word, I say, there is the foreboding of the tragedy that will befall Israel. Oh, to know the certainty of all of the tragedy that is to follow, one only needs to go back to chapter 8 and verse 31 and find all the elements of the bitter things that are to come in chapter 8 and verse 31 and his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Whose name he Called. The Hebrew word called, translated in our Bible, called there, literally means to set. Whose Hebrew name was set. Set. Abimelech. My father, king. There is great debate among scholars as to whether that was actually his name or whether it was a title assigned to him by his mother. It really is of no consequence to our story whether it was his personal name or a title given him. It really is of no consequence. This I say to you in that very introductory word of chapter 9 is the first clap of thunder that shakes the very foundations of Israel as chapter 9 opens before us. So then what, says our text, what does this bastard son set about to do? Well, we read on verse 2. 
Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it's better for you either that all the sons of Jerubbabel, which are threescore and ten persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. What exactly does this first clap of thunder bring to our attention? He contrives a plan. He contrives a plan. One, by the way, may I just briefly pause and say, one that is actually as old as the human family. Nothing new here. He contrives a plan to leverage his evil scheme on the hinge of family relations. But not his father's, not his father's family. He leverages his scheme not on his father's family, that great deliverer who cast that great shadow for 40 years. No, no, not on that man, not on that part of the family, but on his own concubine idolatrous mother. Here, most scholars agree, he calls together the principal men of Israel, calls upon them, the leaders, the elders. The word literally translate, verse uh, verse 2, where he says, I pray, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem. It literally translates masters, elders, leaders. He calls on these principal men and he asks them in verse 2 to consider his plan. (laughs) What Rogers, Rogers in his great commentary in 1615 labeled this verse to the logic of rebellion. The logic of rebellion. Of course, it's logical, he says. Consider my plan. It's logical. Logic of rebellion. What does he ask him to consider? Well, notice, notice with me a couple of things from that verse. And again, I'm just simply trying to set the story before you in this message. He uses this term very, very cunningly in verse 2. He said, is it better, is it better either that all the sons of Jerubbabel, he didn't call him Gideon, because you see that name literally means destroyer of Baal. And these are men who worship Baal. And so he, in the legal terminology of our world, we would say he prejudices the jury by the use of that name. Is it better for you that the sons of this Baal destroyer would rule over you? Or that just one? And then, of course, as I say, it's much older than this scene this particular evil in verse 2 that he brings out 
This is what I've called, if you please, in modern colloquialism, the gut punch in his speech. He says at the end, by the way, remember this, I am your bone and your flesh. (laughs) And there it is. There it is. Now in verse 3, having worked his stratagems artfully and with great success, we get to verse 3, the deed is done. His prey is caught in his crafty net and his plan is well and truly afoot. Verse 3, And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the masters of Shechem. All these words and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said he is our brother. Indeed he is. For his mother is a concubine of Shechem. And so they are caught in his crafty net, dare I use the word logic, and his plan is well and truly set afoot. Their hearts, the text tells us in verse 3, were inclined toward Abimelech. Now here, is an interesting word. The Hebrew word is used only 13 times in the Old Testament. And this is the first. It's the same word that's used in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 1 where the scripture tells us that the psalmist said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. It's the same word used in Psalm 40 and verse 1, and again in Psalm 116 and verse 2. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. So, this word inclined used here for the first time and it's spoken and used by the prophet uh, by, by the psalmist as the fruit of his earnest and effectual intercessions to God. Something of the same effect then. Something of the same effect that we read it, the the way it's used in the book of Psalms and the psalmist expressions of himself. Something of that same effect is said to be effected here as a result of Abimelech's reasoning. With these polluted Shechemites, he has the same effect on them as the psalmist had on the Lord. 
they were inclined toward him. Oh, can I say something to you? We have many among us who are educated and skilled at writing. Can I just give you a warning this morning, just a side warning about the power that is in the crafting of words? Whether for good or for evil, there is great power in the crafting of words. Abimelech brought his speech and it was well crafted. We have no reason to believe that we have all of the record of it. There was probably much more. But as a result of that crafting, these men were brought to be inclined toward him. I'm telling you, there's great power in the crafting of words. Whether for good or for evil. All those final words in verse 3, and by the way, there are only two in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew. He is our brother. Only two words in the Hebrew seem to be coming from their lips. They seem to be in the form of an official vote. They've met together. They've listened to the speech of Abimelech. And then it's just noted almost in a very formal way. There is this statement. He is our brother. (laughs) And with just those two words, Abimelech's wicked scheme of treachery is approved and set into motion with just these two words. Our brother. Now, as with all the ploys of treacherous men, the thing yet required one more need. Financing. (laughs) I thought it was interesting. One commentator took somewhat of a diversion right here and pointed out that there are four principal components to furnish out a despot. (laughs) Four components necessary for furnishing out a despot in any age or climb. Number one, A good despot needs cunning and craft. And Abimelech seemed to have no shortage of that. He was most cunning and most crafty. And it seemed to be very much in his nature to be cunning and crafty. And that's the first requirement for a good despot. Number two... A good despot needs connections. (laughs) As you go through these, does it begin to sound familiar to you like some of the people we know in Washington? A good despot needs needs right connections. And Abimelech had them. 
And he knew where to find them. In his mother's people. Connections. Thirdly, they need the will, the strength of will to do it. And again, we find in Abimelech ample and abundant strength of will to do it. But then finally, any despot to be successful, he's going to need financing. Going to need the money. (laughs) And so when we come down then, we see in verse 4 that the financing is made available. Verse 4. And they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Pereth, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him out of the house of Baal Pereth, Bereth, Baal Bereth. If ever there was any doubt of the evil and wickedness of Abimelech's motive, and there would have been doubt, should have been doubt, notice, notice he said in his sly slightness, he pretends, and again, I'm sorry I'm not dealing with politics this morning, but it sounds an awful lot like the kind of things we hear come out of Washington every day. Notice he said to them, he said, verse 2, I just want to ask, wouldn't it be better for you? (laughs) Better for you. I mean, I just have your interest in mind. I mean, I'm just concerned for your well-being. Wouldn't it be better for you? Well, if you have any doubt about Abimelech's motive, which I don't think they did, notwithstanding the fact he said it'd be better for you what I'm trying to do here, then here, if you had any doubt, here, when you get to verse 4, here is laid to rest any doubt. Look where the finances come from. A phrase we're hearing in the news a lot these days. Follow the money. Follow the money. And when you follow the money in this text, you find out that the finances come from the coffers of idolatry itself. How could you have any doubt What are his motives? Pagan money from pagan temples through pagan hands. Oh, the stench of hell swirls in noxious fumes around every coin in this enterprise. Matthew Henry said Abimelech begins his career by making himself a pensioner to an idol. Exactly one coin 
for every one of the legitimate sons of Gideon. Surely this can be no mere coincidence. And what, we ask, what is to be done with this money? Oh, our verse tells us, does it not? Wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. Vain and light persons. In the Hebrew, the word vain is literally empty. And the word light is literally, it means boiling. It, it, it means restless, boiling, constant, constant erratic movement that has no purpose. In fact, if you look later at Zephaniah, Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It was this very word that Zephaniah the prophet used to describe apostate Israel. Vain and light persons, and they followed him. Of course they did. Empty, restless. These, I submit to you, are the very nobility of this ignoble company of hirelings. These are the nobility with which Abimelech surrounds himself. Matthew Henry called them scum and scoundrels, men of broken fortunes, giddy heads, and profligate lives. These are the men Abimelech hires and surrounds himself with. They, the scripture simply tells us, they followed him. <laughs> oh, empty, restless, vain, light men always do follow somebody. Theirs is not a cause, but a coin. Not a principle, but a piece of silver. Thus will it ever be with light and vain men. They're never aligning themselves behind a cause and a purpose and a principle. It's always about the coin. The silver hired. So where did they follow Abimelech? Where did they follow him? Well, the record does not keep us waiting in suspense to answer that question. Where did they follow him? In verse 5, fratricide. Fratricide. Brothers killing brothers. Oh, notice the text. He went unto his father's house at Oprah. And slew his brethren. The sons of Jerubbabel. Being three score and ten persons. Upon one stone. Upon one stone. There's been a great lot of debate among scholars over the years. And commentators. How this was actually carried out. How it could have possibly been. On one stone. 
Some said that it must have been a stone at the foot of a great precipice. And he had them individually, one at a time, thrown over the precipice and dashed to pieces on the stone. Others say that they were brought to this stone and then executed in some judicial mock act of judicial judgment, had them slain there. How exactly this vile, despicable travesty was performed, the record does not make clear. But this much is all too clear. This unthinkable deed of hellish gore was executed in full view with a crazed frenziness and a fiendishness that would sicken the heart of even the hardest soldier of war. Seventy young, strong heirs of Gideon slain in one place on one stone at one time. I said it's a hellish, unthinkable deed of gore performed in full view. Oh, the scene is too vile, too vile and devilish for me to linger here long for us to view it. Surely all the powers of hell are dancing in impish gaiety as the dastardly deed plays out to the horror of all of God's pious souls in Israel that day. But notice one son escapes. Yet Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left for he hid himself. Jotham. Jotham. And it is not for nothing that he spared, as we shall yet see later in the chapter. But now, finally, in verse 6, though it be a crown forged in hell, though it be financed from the treasury of gross idolatry, though his scepter be bejeweled with stones that were digged from Lucifer's deepest mines, nevertheless, Abimelech is crowned at last. Verse 6, And all the men of Shechem gathered together, and all the house of Milo, and went and made Abimelech king. Crowned at last. The word Milo translates castle or palace. There's a great deal of controversy, uncertainty about where exactly this was. What exactly this palace portion of this scene is. But there's one thing for sure. The translation is very poor at the end that says, by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. It literally is by the oak of the garrison or mound. The very same word is used in Isaiah chapter 29 in verse Three And there it's translated mound by the King James translators. 
So this dreadful scene of his inauguration and crowning takes place at the oak of the mound or at the oak at the oak of the garrison. The oak of the garrison or mound. This is the exact same spot on which Joshua's last national assembly was enacted. And it was there in Joshua chapter 24. You can read it for yourself in verse 1. And then later in verse 25 and 26. It was there on this very scene that Joshua held that last national assembly and poured his heart out to Israel. And they in that place renewed their covenant with God. On this very spot. Of course, Abimelech would choose it just for that significance. And notice with me a very interesting choice of wording in verse 6. Our translation does not altogether give us the emphasis of it. The literal translation here in verse 6 where it says they made him king is actually two different words in the Hebrew. It means, it says, they made him king and caused him to rule. The word translated, that should be translated caused to rule, is the word molak. And it means to ascend a throne to induct into royalty. They inducted him into royalty. Now don't miss these words. Hold on to that thought. The second word, the word king, is melech. And it is literally, as we understand it, a king. This is what the men of Shechem performed upon Abimelech. They they inaugurated him, inducted him into a position of royalty and made him king. But I want you to notice this is not the word used of Israel's judges. They are said to rule or govern and the Hebrew word is Moshal as we see it in chapter 8 and verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule thou over us. That is an entirely different word and not the word used pertaining to Abimelech. They have exalted him into a position of royalty which God never prescribed for Israel. Only ever does the book of Judges speak of those over Israel in this period of time as judges, as counselors, as rulers, as governors, never as royalty or kings. 
But the men of Shechem exalted Abimelech to be a king. So then here he is. The freshly crowned king. The royalty of robes. A diadem of devilish debauchery. The regal seed of whoredom and a prince of pernicious perversion and peevish passions. Matthew Henry said, wickedness personified, rewarded with a diadem. What? Asked Matthew Henry. What could they promise themselves? From a king that laid the foundation of his kingdom in the blood of his brethren. What could they expect from a king and a kingdom that mixed the very mortar of its foundation with the blood of righteous men? And thus the title of my message, Mixing Mortar. With blood. Summarizing these verses in some measure, one commentator summarizes the passages this way. He said, If we study the character of men famous, either in profane or sacred history, if we study their character with a view not merely to their capacity, but to their moral worth, we shall observe one very marked distinction between them, between men in sacred history and profane history. Some, the few evidently, use their great powers and their great opportunities with entire disinterestedness, with singleness of purpose to promote God's glory and the happiness and welfare of their countrymen, and not in any wise for self-aggrandizement. Such men, for example, as Moses, Joshua, and Samuel, though they wielded all the powers of the state, were entirely above the littleness of self-seeking. They had fidelity. They had, sorry, yes, they had each a great mission. And they fulfilled it to the utmost of their ability with unswerving fidelity. They had each a weighty task entrusted to them. And they executed it with unflagging perseverance. But the idea of enriching themselves or exalting their own families seemed never to have entered into their heads or at all events, it never influenced their conduct. We can say the same of a few great names even in profane history. It was true to a certain extent of Charlemagne. It was true preeminently of Alfred the Great. It was true of some of the early patriots of Rome, like Scipio Africanus. It was said of Washington, of Pitt, and of the Duke of Wellington. 
But in the bulk of the great men of history, we cannot help seeing that the motive force which called forth their energies and stimulated their power was ambition. A lust of conquest. The desire of wealth and greatness. In a word, self-aggrandizement. The career of such men of might as Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, whatever eminent qualities of head or heart they may have displayed gave unmistakable signs that they were really pursuing their own greatness as the end of the performances, both in the cabinet and in the field. A comparison of Gideon and Abimelech presents the same sharp contrast. Gideon was roused by the call of God to seek his country's deliverance from a galling yoke and restore the worship of the true God in his native land with the self-devotion of a hofer and the unflinching enthusiasm of a luther. He gave himself his double task and accomplished it at the risk of his own life without a thought of himself or any selfish ends. Bimelech, seeking power for himself, pretended to have in view the people's interest. He pretended to have in view the people's interest and to secure their favor. But he restored an abominable idolatry. His kingdom founded in bloodshed, abetted by falsehood, fostered by base and cruel policy, had no end or motive but self-aggrandizement. There is exactly the same difference in the character and conduct of men in the commonest affairs of everyday life. Some men have high aims and pursue them by righteous, righteous paths. Others have selfish ends and pursue them in unscrupulous ways. Be it ours to aim at doing the will of God in the commonest as well as in the greatest actions that we seek. Let us steadily set before us the thing that is right as the end for which we seek. Let us consider that our powers, be they great or small, are given to us that in the exercise of them we may give God glory and do good to men. Without calculation of self-interest, let us follow God's call, devote ourselves to His good pleasure, and seek our neighbor's welfare and trust to God's loving kindness. In so doing, we shall meet, be made meet for the kingdom of God. May God grant it for all of us. The poet viewing this scene said, Oh, could evil find no better place than in man's heart to reign? Tis in the heart that's without grace where blood red runs its stain. Could brother kill brother true? 
and earth be stained so black? Can horrors with such blackened hue in human veins be tracked? Oh yes! And so it ever will in godless souls unchecked. And hell will pour out hell the more these callous crimes infect. But high upon yon sacred hill in holy splendor robed, there sits upon a throne on high one judge surveys the globe and laid up by his hand of might the record still he holds and all men's blood in his pure light their silence break be told. Rush on ye fools, rush on in haste, drink in your wicked lust, but the great judge sees all your deeds, will crush your bones to dust, will crush your bones to dust. Now the whole sordid scene is set before us. What now are the great lessons to our souls in this record. God willing, we shall see. Turn with me in your Bible, please, in your hymn book, please, number 492. Stand with me, please. Great King of glory and of grace, we own with humble shame how vile is our degenerate race and our first father's name. We live estranged apart from God and love the distance well. With haste we run the dangerous road that leads to death and hell. And can such rebels be restored? Such natures made divine let sinners see thy glory Lord and feel this power of thine we raise our father's name on high who his own spirit sends 
to bring rebellious strangers nigh and turn his foes to friends. <laughs>